Good morning, church. How long do you think till I take off the jacket? Anyone want to make any bets on this? Thank you for joining us as we continue our series called In Jesus' Name, Amen. For the past few weeks, we've been picking apart Jesus' prayer in John 17, where two weeks ago we studied wanting to, Jesus wanting to give glory to the Father by being given glory by the Father, and that Jesus gives eternal life to those the Father has given to Jesus. As we've been studying this series, we started John back in 2018, and so now that we're back in this, we are coming to the conclusion. In fact, starting next week, we're going to be where Jesus gets arrested. And so there has been a lot of time being spent just in the past few weeks on the prayer of Jesus for his disciples. Last week, we specifically studied Jesus' prayer for the disciples who would become apostles and that God would protect them, while they also would bring glory to Jesus through their documentation and proclamation of the finished work of Jesus. Today, we're going to see Jesus pray for us. For those of us in the time period in which Jesus prayed for every other believer that will submit to Jesus' lordship for all time, Jesus will lift us up to the Father, and my hope for us today is that we'll see how beautiful and thoughtful this prayer is from Jesus for us. Do you ever feel like you're not satisfied? This is church. We can be honest. Do you ever feel like you're not satisfied? Okay. Laura, thank you. Rest of you, okay. Thank you, Brian. Do you ever feel like there's something missing? That contentment is something that just never seems possible. I occasionally struggle with this. I look at my life and I wonder what I could be doing differently or doing better or doing instead of. And when eventually I stop turning to things like the internet to try to find answers to my questions or to recreational things that I can do, eventually I start to pray. And God brings to mind his very words. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, says it this way, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. All right, like, Four minutes, maybe. I'll leave it here. So if eternity is something that has been set in the human heart, it's something that God has put into us, then honestly, our satisfaction in this life should really never take place. Because this life doesn't satisfy. Because it can't. But eternity can and so today, as we study Jesus' prayer for all believers of all time, I want us to be thinking not just about the moment in which Jesus prayed this right before he was arrested, or this moment that we're in right now in 2021, but with eternity in mind, would we appreciate the words that Jesus is about to pray? Here's how he starts in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is continuing this prayer from last week, praying for the disciples who would become apostles. We've said that a lot. God doesn't differentiate when we're talking about scriptures, in the scriptures, he doesn't differentiate between the believers and the disciples, but as we've studied this prayer, we should probably differentiate the disciples who would become apostles from us, because we're not apostles. No man living today is an apostle. An apostle was someone chosen by God through the witnessing of Jesus being resurrected and then being sent by God the Father after Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension to be witnesses and proclaimers of what they saw once the Holy Spirit arrived. In fact, many of us know this passage in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6, 
Luke writes and he says, Then they gathered around him, Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In my paraphrase, it's none of your business. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. These disciples who would become apostles waited for the promised Holy Spirit to come and bring power to these apostles, which then we see in chapter 2 of Acts gave them a boldness, gave a boldness to the 12, including Peter, to preach at Pentecost this gospel message. Here's what it says in Acts 2.14. Then Peter stood up amongst the 11, raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then we're not going to get into the entire sermon because it's long, but Peter gets up and preaches a message that would probably get him canceled now. He says the least seeker-sensitive sermon I've ever heard. He goes, all of y'all killed Jesus. And thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, opening the eyes of the people to receive the message of the gospel. I share all of that to let you know that we are not apostles. Like who Jesus prayed for in the passage that preceded this one, but we, if we've bowed our knee, if we've bowed our will to Jesus Christ, we are then considered believers which make us disciples, just not the disciples, but disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we have believed in Jesus through the preaching of their message, Jesus says, verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, Jesus prays, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you, Jesus alludes to. An excuse that many people have about Jesus has nothing to do with Jesus himself. But in those of us who claim to follow and trust Jesus, people have excuses about us. Gandhi is quoted as a saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Christians are so unlike your Christ. And unfortunately, I totally see what he means. But he is at best looking at posers who claim Christ, but do not follow him, or immature Christians that really don't follow Christ, but expect Christ to follow them and are yet to be sanctified and taught that that really doesn't work. Unity that Jesus is speaking of is actually a marker of maturity, not unity in and of itself, but gospel-driven purpose. A Holy Spirit type of unity that requires us to think first about the kingdom of God, to focus on the glory of the king, to think not first about ourselves, but think first about our Lord, and out of thinking about our Lord, we then think about other people before ourselves. The unity that the Holy Spirit produces isn't one that can be defined by a similar purpose or an expectation of what a Christian ought to look like. Unity in the sense of what Jesus' words are alluding to here, is about the reality that God reconciles man back to himself, and that is what bonds us. That's what makes us justified together, by God's grace and not our own doing. The disciples who had become apostles had different professions, from being fishermen, that was Andrew, Peter, James, and John. There was a tax collector known as Levi who changed his name to Matthew. There was Simon the Zealot, also known as a Canaanite. Then there were six other apostles. We do not really have a recording in history of what their actual professions were, but let me point out something about Simon, who was known as a zealot. 
A zealot was someone who attempted to create anarchy and division against political systems and regimes. He specifically was attempting to affect the Roman Empire. The same Roman Empire that Levi, who became Matthew, was working for when Jesus called him to follow him. And I have to assume that having Levi and Simon in the same group, in the same gaggle of disciples, in the same group of men who were trusting Jesus was a little bit awkward as their past made them direct enemies. And yet the gospel personified in the person and work of Jesus didn't just make them able to sit in the same room together. The gospel of grace made them brothers. The time period in which Jesus' teaching ministry happened was one of civil unrest, political polarization, and lack of trust in the authorities. Does this sound familiar at all to anyone who's stepped outside this week? This past Monday night, all of the elders, the ones that you saw here today, the elders, we all went and had what we called a fun evening, where we went and played bocce ball in Los Gatos as a team. It had been two years since we had done anything recreational together, and I think we needed it. We enjoyed it, and it really was a memorable time just to enjoy the elder leaders that God has put together at COV. But you have to know this, there is little that would draw us together if it weren't for Jesus Christ. You have some educated and degreed elders, you have some blue-collared elders, you have elders who have grown-up children in their household or out of their house, you have elders who have little children, you have elders who live in Santa Clara, you have elders who live in the greater part of San Jose, you have elders who love the Niners, and for some reason you have elders who love the Packers and the Broncos. You even have an elder or two that doesn't care at all. Weird. The reality is that we are bonded by Jesus Christ and him alone. And the belief that he, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead and that his gospel is true and we desperately, as elders, want to see him glorified through you, the congregation of Church of the Valley. It's the gospel that makes us one with one another. And it is the gospel that makes us believers and disciples of Jesus Christ one with other believers across the world. The difficult part is, and I'm about to be a little bit cynical, but I think I'm correct, not everyone who says that they are a Christian is actually one who submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ by finding their justification and salvation through Jesus Christ's work only. The pandemic has been a bit jarring and divisive as far as the situation is concerned for people in and outside of the church. I've heard many statistics and surveys that have been made about the Church of Jesus Christ, especially around evangelical and Protestant church attendance and membership. But one thing that was pretty consistent in a few different articles that I read and a few different podcasts that I listened to over the past few months was what people called the decline of Christianity. Well, here's the thing about the decline of Christianity. It's not exactly what most people think. Are fewer people going to churches all around the country? Yes, that's actually happening. But what we're seeing is not Christians losing their salvation or Christians deciding that church is not for them. What we're seeing is that nominal believers are departing the church in droves. And here's what I mean by nominal. This was the definition that a much smarter Tim Keller than me said. Someone who identifies themselves as someone who has a social or cultural pressure or benefit 
for attending or being part of a church. That's how they defined a nominal believer. Someone that felt like they had to be there or someone who was trying to benefit in this world by being part of the church. Those people are the ones that are leaving in droves. Why? Practically, because the pandemic has made some realize that they have, uh, there's a day where they'll die. And instead of running to God, they run away from him and attempt to seize the day by finding pleasure and fun. And they use their weekends for recreation rather than worship. And see, I'm not against taking some weekends off to enjoy creation and recreation. That's not a bad thing. In fact, I had a sabbatical. It was awesome. I recommend them. But when church attendance and belonging to the greater church family is not a priority, it tends to show in our lives, our priorities, and our decision-making. But the theological sense is that nominal Christians who possibly inherited their faith from their parents, they're not losing their faith. They're losing their parents' faith, which really didn't mean anything to them anyway. And the nominal Christian is more enamored with how the church organized religion and belonging to a people makes them feel than whose they actually are in Jesus Christ. So they don't step away from Christ because they've never really known him. They step away from Christianity, and Christianity can never save because only Jesus can save. Do you see the differentiation? But he calls us, church, to be a people, to be a messed up people, to be refined and so God can sanctify us. And for most people, those who are nominal, they have always had one foot out of the door anyway. So the pandemic just fast-forwarded what many would have done much later. But because many felt like they lost a year, they now have to try something else that will tickle their ears and give them emotional highs because the faithfulness and endurance that is expected of a Christ-following Christian seems to be too much for some. So why do I rant about this? Because being one is about the unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not about shared interests. Because shared interests change and shared interests don't satisfy. But Jesus does not change. And he is able to satisfy our desperate need for a savior. But only for those who realize that they're in need of saving. So let's look at verse 21 one more time. That all of them may be one, Father, Jesus says. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the, word may, the world may believe that you have sent me. May they, the believers, also be in us so that the world will believe that Jesus is sent from the Father. As many people have the excuse that Christians do not look like the Christ that they follow is the reason for their disbelief or their unwillingness to believe, that doesn't change the fact that our belief system is rooted in the perfect one rather than our ability to follow him perfectly. I was reminded by a podcast this week, because I ran a lot this week, so I listened to a lot of podcasts, about conversations that I've had with people for about 20 years regarding faith. Once a gentleman came to me who had studied with me about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and he said he was having some doubts, and I inquired, well, which ones? And he said, the idea that God parted the sea so that the Israelites could run through it and then brought the sea back together and drown all the Egyptians that were chasing them through the sea. And I said, well, what's the argument that could have happened if it wasn't that? And he said, well, maybe the water was just really shallow and they just ran through it. So I joked about parting of the Red Sea and said, well, either the miracle was that God parted the Red Sea, or if you believe that the water was so shallow that the Israelites could run through it, then the miracle was that the Egyptians drowned in water that was probably three inches deep. 
But what I pointed out was all of the time and effort that we have spent walking through, he and I, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it's factual, how it's probable, how it was theological and how it makes sense of everything else the Bible teaches us is possible. So I asked him, do you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And he said, yes, I do, absolutely, was his reply. And then I asked him, if Jesus actually and factually rose from the dead after being in the grave for parts of three days, how difficult is it for God to part some water? Come on. And he had a bit of a light bulb moment. The reality is that our faith is useless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and all of our eggs are put into that Easter basket, pun intended, you're welcome. So being nominal and with one leg out while claiming you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus is ludicrous. To believe in Jesus is to believe all that Jesus said and did according to the word of God. You don't get to pick and choose what you want to believe about him. He is either the way, the truth, and the life, or he is an imposter that those of us who are serious about our faith have been duped by. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, Jesus says that they may be one as we are one. Jesus has made himself known to these disciples who would become apostles, and the glory that he revealed to them was God in the flesh, the person and character of God before them. Jesus, my favorite definition, is God with skin. And they personally ate with Jesus, talked to Jesus, and lived life with God himself. They then will have the purpose and ability through the work of the Holy Spirit to not only document but to make available the glory of God by their writing of the New Testament. That is how believers in this time period in which Jesus prays, and then for all time, past even you and I, will have the glory revealed to us. It is found in the scriptures. We don't worship the book, but the book points us to the one who we worship. I don't want us to treat the triune God like Father, Son, Holy Book. But the Holy Spirit wrote the holy book so that we could know the Holy Son. And through that holy rusted metal, Batman, we can be saved. Hallelujah. Verse 23. I am them and you and me, so that we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. United in faith. What faith? I believe Jesus is pointing out the apostolic faith is what I believe Jesus is talking about, that it is what believers are unified in. We are about Jesus. We are about his grace. We are about his sacrifice and his resurrection, and that is what makes any of us one with one another. Real quick, look around the room real fast. Just turn your head. Just look around. There are other people in this congregation that are here because of Jesus Christ because of what Christ has done, not because they're like, I don't want to sleep in on Sundays. Why would anyone want to do that? We're here because Christ rose from the dead, and we believe that together. Matthew 16, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. This is many, uh, about a year prior, maybe not that long, prior to what we're reading today in John. Matthew 16 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, of course, answered, 
You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter points out that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This church is what we are unified in. This confession, this is what the church stakes its claim on, that Jesus is Lord. It is either Jesus or it is nothing. But saying it without living it is cheap. So you want to be unified like Jesus speaks? Live as if you really believe that Jesus is Lord. Unity among believers in this is the most important thing we must agree on. And Jesus prays specifically that you and I, people who self-identify as Christians, cannot exclude the confession that Jesus is the Christ and our Christ. Martin Luther says it this way, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is Savior, it is quite another thing to say He is my Savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first, The true Christian alone can say the second. I say often that if the devil can do something, we probably shouldn't brag about it ourselves. And even demons believe and shudder, as James points out. But we follow and bow down in unity to Jesus Christ, and a demon will never do that. May we find unity and friendship and joy and peace together in the reality that Jesus is our Lord together. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory and the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus, while speaking to the Father, he's physically on earth, I believe was pointing to where he would be, which never really changed. He, Jesus, is always at the center of the kingdom of God and the center of God's will because Jesus is obeying and reigning as king. Jesus wants those who to believe to be with him in the kingdom of God, or as Matthew puts it, the kingdom of heaven. So where's the most beautiful place you've ever been? All right, let's pretend like we know how to talk back to the pastor. Just give me something. What's a beautiful place you've been? Go. Yosemite, Yosemite. Everyone's like, West Coast, Yosemite. What else? Turkey. Turkey. Awesome. Alaska. Heck yes. Uh, uh, Chris doesn't understand the question. Any other, any other places? Hawaii. Big Sur. Man, these are places that God created, except for Mile High Stadium, that are beautiful. What about it? So I don't get out much. So most of my favorite places are in California. But it's not Yosemite. When I think of beauty, (laughs) I think of Twain Heart. I'll explain why. And Avalon. Anyone? That's Catalina Island for you city folk. So I think of these two places. Why? Because Twain Heart is where I've spent a few summers, and I've, I've spent different times. We've rented a house. We've just been out there, and I've been with my family, and we've seen all the trees, and we've just, it's just a great place that I remember enjoying with my family. Avalon is Catalina Island, even though we've probably been there more often on a cruise to Ensenada. We've also stayed specifically in Catalina or at Avalon before, and I just love that the beach is there, and when you, get onto the, when you get onto the island, it feels like you went back in time 60 or 70 years. 
there's just something beautiful about those two things. Those are mine. Those don't have to be yours. I'm not trying to convince you that those ought to be yours. A lot of you have seen more beautiful things than I have, but when I think of both of those things, I praise God because God is the artist who can create beauty. And we as believers are promised an eternity with God. We are promised heaven if we've committed our lives to Jesus. And each of us probably, when we hear heaven, have visions of clouds and harps and angels and breathtaking views. But what Scripture teaches us about heaven is that Jesus will be there, and that's enough. Matthew 26, 64 said, You have said so, Jesus replied, and I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Colossians 3.1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him has endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Acts 7.55-56, when Stephen is preaching this this sermon before he's about to be martyred for his faith, it says, but Stephen, full of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That might not be as exciting for the people who picture heaven as raining chocolate. But heaven is the place where God is, and His glory lights up everything, and nothing in this world will ever satisfy, nor should it, like the hope and expectation that one day we will be with our Lord and our Savior and our Creator and our Sustainer in Jesus Christ for eternity to praise and honor and glory in His beauty and majesty forever and ever. Amen. So this week… Unlike a lot of weeks, if I'm really being honest, this week I spent a bunch of time sitting still and thinking about what it'll be like to no longer have pain of broken relationships in this world, to no longer have to deal with sin, to no longer have to deal with the decaying of our bodies, to be in the presence of God It seems to be the greatest reality any of us can really think of, even though we can't really fathom it. Because when this world is getting me down, to think unto heaven, to think unto Jesus' presence gets me excited for what's to come. Verse 25 says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. Knowing God the Father... To know God, as John Piper would say it, requires knowing God the Son, who came to be our mediator so we could be in the presence of the Father. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 put it this way, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So through our mediator, our Savior, Jesus, we can come to God. 
And we don't just come to God messed up or or screwed up. We come to God found innocent and spotless, not because of our ability to earn, but because of God's gracious gift in His Son. Have you given God praise this week for the reality that you stand innocent before God? And it was the Father who sent the Son, and by God's grace alone, every believer can recognize and acknowledge that they are made right before Him. Verse 26, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. God the Father is made known in Jesus. He is knowable because we know Jesus. And Jesus speaks that the love that the Father has for the Son is in them. This term, in them, as we as believers in Jesus are found in Christ, in Him. When you see in before Him or Christ or Jesus, it's a pretty big deal. It is covenantal language. It means that we are superseded by Christ in our relationship with God, in our works and in our need. God sees His Son, church, when He looks at us. And I don't know what you've been through this week, this month, this year, but I know I've sinned, and I know there are plenty of times where I don't feel good enough to come before God. But what I read in Ephesians 2 verse 6 is I studied with some guys this week that reminded me of this, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So if you've made a mistake this week, church, if you've failed, if you've sinned, if you've transgressed, you can still come to God and God will see his son when he looks at you and there is nothing more exciting and important than the reality that you don't come to God with shame. You don't have to because Jesus paid for that on the cross and he proved it by resurrecting from the dead. Hallelujah. This ought to make each of us not feel shame or guilt when we come to God in prayer. Not because we haven't done anything wrong, but because we are Christ's, meaning possessive. He owns us. God sees his son when he looks at us. In fact, God doesn't see our sin when he looks at us. When our works are bad, he still sees Jesus. But let me let you know something. Even when we do good by our own standards, God still sees Jesus when he looks at us. So don't come proudly like you did everything right. Come to God understanding that you needed him to make everything right in his finished work and not your own. So I remember being a 13-year-old boy. Anyone else? Okay. Half of you. <laughs> My dad was part of some, uh, some dog clubs. He was part of the Weimar Honor Association. I don't know. I don't expect you to understand that. It was super weird growing up with my dad. And they would meet uh, once a month at IHOP off of Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena. It's technically Route 66 as well. And I would listen to them, and I would get so bored listening to them do Robert's Rules. You guys familiar? I second that motion. I third it. I digress. Whatever. And so I remember them just talking about all this different stuff all the time, and I would have to sit there, and I was the only kid there because my dad was like a single dad, and I would sit there, and I'd be like, oh, this is lame, and we didn't have phones to play with, guys. You don't even know the struggle, young people. And so eventually, I would just say to my dad, I'd be like, Dad, can I, can I just go sit in the car? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. So I'd go into the parking lot, and I wouldn't sit in the car because I'm a sinner, 
but I would, I would lay on my dad's 63 Mercury Comet convertible hood. Yeah, and this thing was steel. And I would lay on the hood. It wouldn't dent at all, even though I was like 80 pounds. And I would get, so, as I was so bored listening to them, I would sit on this hood and I would look up at the sky. And like, I've been to places where there's no, you know, lights. And this wasn't that. I mean, I could look into the sky and there were a few stars. It's not like Wyoming where it's perfect. That place is beautiful. Anyway, and so, so I would lay on the hood and I would start to wonder things as a 13-year-old antagonistic atheist. I'd start to look at the sky and wonder where I came from. I mean, my parents, but was there something more than that? I would look up into the sky and I would wonder where I was going. I'd look up into the sky and I would wonder what I was doing here on earth. I didn't know Christ at the time. But I realize now, as I was thinking about this, that this was a foreshadowing of what was to come. See, back then I was left to my own intellect and opinions. I didn't even have Google. But now I have God's Word to lead me, to direct me, which points to an eternity of joy, not because heaven is where you get to have all your favorite recreational things, but because heaven is where Jesus is. And there is nothing in this life that can satisfy our need to be in relationship with him other than bowing down and following him for the glory of his name. 